The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And it's been an exciting week again. The Colonial Pipeline was hit with ransomware. And that is a story that just keeps on giving. (laughs) I'm going to give all the latest update on that. It's quite an amazing arc of events that occurred on that particular uh, pipeline and the hackers that sent them the ransomware. Uh, Innovation of the week. There's now a motor for electric vehicles that does not require magnets. This Hmm. is quite a big deal because China owns 97% of the supply of magnets. So we'd really rather not depend on China for that critical resource. We now have Definity. It's the build as the internet computer. I'll talk about how Definity uses blockchain to create, to reinvent the internet. And of course, Bitcoin and Dogecoin prices have been up and down and through the ringer this week because of Elon Musk. His tweets, his Saturday night live appearance and everything else is driving the markets crazy. It's kind of fun to watch that to see what is in fact going on. This week, we're going to feature a man who we think he exists, but maybe he doesn't exist, Satoshi Nakamoto. That is the uh, person, the pseudonym, that is responsible for the creation of Bitcoin and the distributed ledger. I'll go back through the saga of of Satoshi and tell you who we think he might be and what he did and why it is so significant. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc, Jim, and the ever-vigilant Mr. Big Voice, many are nervous about the energy requirements of cryptocurrency mining, but I think Chia has another kind of cryptocurrency that does not involve uh, energy-intensive mining, but instead it's a memory memory-intensive set of tasks called farming for verification. At least it looks like an interesting thing to me. What do you think, Doc? Well, um, uh, Bob, Chia uh, seems like a, um, a, a pretty good idea. It was actually the Chia network. Uh, it, it's a pretty good idea because it uses much less energy consumption. Uh, the Chia network was founded by BitTorrent creator Bram Cohen. And it basically runs on a different principle. You know, instead of having to do a very complicated proof of work, uh, which is computationally intensive, you do something different. Now, what what it does, you basically look up uh, some look up uh, numbers on your hard drive. 
Now, what it does, it uses uh, storage space to mine coins rather than energy-intensive mining rings, mining rigs powered by graphic cards and ASIC miners. Uh, Chia validates the block by seeding unused spaces on the hard drive with a collection of cryptographic numbers that it puts on your disk into plots. And then uh, whoever owns the disk is called a farmer. So whenever they have a blockchain challenge to see whether it's a block, they send out that number to all the farmers and they scan their plot to see if they have the hash that's closest to the challenge. And the first farmer that finds the hash and send it back is awarded a cryptocurrency. So you can actually do this without uh, a lot of intensive calculation. On the other hand, you're doing a lot of scanning of your hard drive and there's a lot of reading and writing on the hard drive. Now, because this new, new um, cryptocurrency came out, uh, people have been buying up hard drives. I mean, in China, the hard drives have been selling out because people want to start mining Chia. And uh, even though Chia doesn't trade yet, it's just an idea because they're thinking that the first people that can validate the initial blocks of a new cryptocurrency are going to make big bucks. So they're trying to get in on the ground floor with Chia before it's even, uh, even uh, developed. So uh, this is one of many different cryptocurrencies that are trying to solve the energy consumption problem. Bitcoin mining alone uses the entire energy consumption of the country of Argentina. So it is just getting a little bit out of hand. Uh, hi, Dr. Schertz. I was getting ready to upgrade to a, no, to a new Roku player for the third time, and I was wondering if I should invest in a Roku TV instead. Maybe I would not have to upgrade as often, uh, or maybe I'll just, have to, I'll just have to upgrade my TV more often. What do you think? What's your recommendation? Harry in Fairfax. Well, Roku, Harry, is the best-selling streaming player in the United States. Roku TVs are now the third most popular TV sold in the United States. So many cord cutters are asking the very question that you're asking. Should I buy a Roku player or should I buy a Roku TV? Well, the Roku player is just a streaming device that plugs into an existing TV, uh, you know, to get Netflix, Hulu, or Amazon. And you basically plug it into the HDMI port of your TV and, and it will convert any TV into a streaming TV as long as you've got an HDMI port. On the other hand, a Roku TV builds in the Roku streaming hardware into the TV itself. So you don't have to plug anything into the TV. It will just stream Roku on its own. And, um, and so you, you, you basically then don't have to get a streaming player. You just buy the Roku TV. And, um, and the nice thing about Roku is that uh, they will continue to upgrade that TV as new versions of Roku Player come out, and they'll continue to support the TV uh, for quite some time. So here's the question. Do you want to buy a Roku TV or a Roku Player? Well, it really depends on what TV you currently have. If you've got a TV that you like, a TV you're going to keep for a good long while, there's no reason to throw that TV out. Just keep that TV and get a player, Roku player. On the other hand, if you've got an old TV and you want to uh, buy a new one, 
almost all the new TVs are smart TVs. You might as well get a smart TV that's got the Roku player built in. So if you want to get rid of your current TV, buy a Roku TV. I mean, like you can get a Roku TV like the TL5 series or the TL6 series that are really good. Those are mid-priced units. And, uh, and then you won't have to buy a player. So it really depends on your situation. You could go either way. We got an email from hey, Mary Doc. Ann in Whitestone. Dear Tech Talk, I've just set up a Robin Hood wallet for trading crypto coins using my cell phone. When I logged into my Robinhood account on my computer, it wanted me to set up two-factor authentication. It gave me two choices, email, text. Well, it really gave me two choices, text message or authenticator. I really don't understand this question. What do you recommend, Marianne and Whitestone? Well, first of all, Marianne, enabling two-factor authentication on a crypto wallet is really essential for security. Very, very important. It means you put in a password. After you put in the password, that you will receive a another authentication number that you have to put in, a one-time number that you just put in. And uh, so the question is, how do you receive that number? Well, in the old days, uh, you know, long ago, we would receive it by email, and you just get an email, and you'd get that authentication number and put it in. But now emails were too easily hacked. So in order for security, they said, no, you can't use an email account. Use a cell phone and just get a text message. Uh, because you physically got your cell phone, it's going to be hard for anybody to intercept it. That was, you know, up to a few years ago, a couple of years ago. And then the hackers got smart. They started using SIM card hijacking, where they would go to the phone company and say, oh, I lost my, my phone, my SIM card's not working. Would you reassign my phone number to another SIM card? And they could use social engineering. And in many cases, they got the telcos to switch the number to a different SIM. That was called SIM card hijacking. And then what would happen if the hijackers would uh, could actually hack in and get your password to your wallet, to your crypto wallet, and they'd also hijacked your SIM card, they could basically steal your account and wipe you out. There were a number of highly publicized cases where people had their crypto wallets hacked uh, and they had two-factor authentication using text messaging. So because of the uh, threat of SIM card hijacking, I would recommend that you use the authenticator. Uh, it's much harder for, uh, for hackers to do anything about that. So there are th you basically download a program to your uh, cell phone, and there are three that, that are available that I think are quite good. You've got Microsoft Authenticator, you've got Google Authenticator, and you've got the Cisco Duo Authenticator. All three of those are available either on Android or iPhones. So you download, pick an authenticator that you want to use. I'm currently using Google Authenticator. And then you go into the wallet that supports Authenticator, and you choose Authenticator for your second, uh, second verification for your two-factor authentication. And then you'll click on a QR code, and a QR code will show up on your screen on your computer. Then you simply open up the authenticator on your cell phone and press the button that says QR code and read the QR code right off the screen. And the QR code will completely configure your authenticator. I mean, it takes about 10 seconds. It's really quick. Then what you do, the next time you log into Robinhood on your computer and, it at, and you put in your password, then it asks for the authenticator code. You simply open up Google Authenticator on your cell phone 
and you'll see a six-digit number. You enter the six-digit number into the computer, and bingo, you're in. A, a hacker cannot steal your authenticator, even if they hijack your SIM card. So that is a much safer way to do it, and I highly, highly recommend that you use the authenticator. We got an email from Brenda in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, I took my laptop to the shop because the screen stopped lighting up. They checked me and told me that the screen was bad. It'd be about $200 to replace the screen. I told them I couldn't afford it. So I bought a new monitor, uh, you know, for about 50 bucks. But when I hooked up my new monitor to the HDMI port of my uh, laptop, I had a Dell, I have a Dell laptop and a, and a Windows, running Windows 10. Uh, I've got a Lenovo laptop running Windows 10, and my monitor, I bought a Dell LED monitor, 23-inch, not very expensive, uh, but it, but I don't see anything. So what, what's the problem? Well, um, actually, I'm assuming that your video circuitry is okay in your laptop. More than likely what's happening, your, your, your computer is simply not configured to send a signal to an external, to an external screen. So you actually have to, um, have to do that. And there's a, uh, Within Windows, there's something called projector projection. If you want to, like, if you want to hook it up to a projector and have the screen show up show up on the projector, or if you want to have a second screen. Now, you don't actually, you can't actually see what's on the screen. So I'm going to tell you what to do without seeing what's on the screen. You want to uh, open up your, you know, turn on the computer, and then uh, once the computer's booted up, uh, press Windows P, Windows plus the P key, Windows plus P key combination and that brings you to a window that will that's for project it's called the project window um, and then uh, you can't see this so you're going to have to do this blindly and then you press the down arrow three times and that will take you from the top of the screen down to a point which says second screen only which means you're going to send the information to the second screen and only to the second screen, not to the primary screen. And then you click enter. Once you do that, your video output will go to your HDMI port and go to the second screen and, and you should be just fine. Best of luck with that. We got an email from Alex in Baltimore. Dear Tech Doc, I was on the way to print out I, I, I would, I, you know, I've, I've got all these passwords that are, you know, that are stored in my Google account in Chrome. And, you know, I'd like to just print them out. So I got them for me. I could, I could lock them up. Is there any way to print out all the passwords that Google has stored? Well, actually there is, it's, it's quite easy. You can, you can go to your Google account and then go to what they call password manager, search for password manager within your Google account. You'll probably, of course, you'll have to log in. And then under a password options, uh, there's a password options icon that's located near the top. It looks like a gear or a cog. Then click on that, and then you'll find export passwords. You can click on the export passwords button on the right side of that line, and then click export, and that will send everything to a... Uh, now you should have a plain text file named googlepasswords.csv. Googlepasswords.csv. That's basically a comma delimited uh, database. So googlepasswords.csv in your downloads folder. So you can open up googlepasswords.csv in Notepad and you can print it out. And if you want to make it more readable, you could replace your the commas with uh, tab markings. You can convert it to a table or you could just 
leave the commas there and read. It's not that hard to read. After that, you'll have a hard copy printout of all the passwords. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. This is Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM, 1039 FM HD2 in Loudoun County, 104.5 FM, and southwest of D.C. on 1077 FM HD2. Want to go to Stratford University? Start the process by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Profiles in IT. Somebody jumped the gun, Doc. Somebody jumped the gun, I know that. Yeah. Uh, welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Properly done. Yes. Today I'm going to feature Satoshi Nakamoto. Satoshi Nakamoto is the name used by the person or persons who developed Bitcoin. It's the person or persons who authored the Bitcoin white paper and who created Bitcoin's original implementation. Nakamoto was active in the development of Bitcoin up, to the, up until December 2010. Now, many people have claimed or have been claimed to be Nakamoto. Now, Nakamoto started writing the code for Bitcoin around 20, 2007. On August 18, 2008, he or a colleague registered the domain name Bitcoin.org back in August of 2008. And created a website at that address. And that website's still there. I was looking around it today. It's got a lot of interesting stuff on Bitcoin. In October 31 of 2008, Nakamoto published a white paper on cryptography, on the cryptography mail, and he sent it to the cryptography mailing list. Uh, and it described the digital cryptocurrency. And it was titled, Bitcoin, a Peer-to-Peer -peer Electronic Cash System. I just read that paper, uh, you know, last evening. It's on bitcoin.org slash bitcoin.pdf. You just go to the Bitcoin, you can find the paper. 
It's actually surprisingly readable. It's only about 10 pages long. So if you want to get an original piece, an original paper written by Satoshi, that is an excellent read. And even if you skip the math part, just, you can read the, you can read the uh, description of how it works, and it's really quite well written. And it's written so it's understandable. So I'd recommend that. That paper, it does describe uh, the, the problem they were trying to solve when he created the uh, distributed ledger. Now, Nakamoto was the first person to solve the double spending problem for digital currency. See, the problem with digital currency is that you can just make a copy. So you could have a Bitcoin, uh, you can make a copy of it, you could spend it you know, at the 7-Eleven and buy a, you know, buy a Slurpee, then you could take the same Bitcoin and go to the, uh, uh, go to the gas station and buy gas. How are you going to keep somebody from spending the same Bitcoin twice? That was the issue. And that's, that was the, uh, that was the, the barrier to the use of uh, digital, uh, digital money. He solved the double spending problem. And, um, and, he, and for the, the creation of uh, the cryptocurrency for the first time. Now, why is this actually significant? You see, if you look at the internet, you can send information over the internet. You, like you can send a picture. I could send a picture to anyone. It goes straight from me to the person I want and they get the picture. So I can transfer information on the internet without an intermediary, without any problem. But suppose I would want to send somebody on the internet a dollar or some monetary amount. There's no way that I could send them a monetary amount directly unless I go through an intermediary. You know, so we all know you could go to PayPal and then PayPal sends it. So everything or you could you could you could have the bank send it to them. Always there is an intermediary when you're sending money over the internet. And so he was trying to solve the problem of how can we distribute value over the internet without an intermediary, and that, of course, would be with digital money. Uh, but you have to solve the double spending problem first. So Nakamoto proposed a decentralized approach to transactions, and it ultimately, uh, it ultimately was culminated in the creation of blockchains. Now, a blockchain is a time-stamped transaction log that includes all prior transactions, including the time they occurred, and so you can see all transfers up to this point. And then if you try to spend a, uh, a digital currency again, uh, somebody's going to take and look at the number on your digital on your digital currency to see whether it has been spent before. And if it has been spent before, it will be rejected. So he and this rejection is based on uh, a proof of work calculation that people actually would do. So they would bundle up all the latest transactions into a block, and then they would analyze the block to see whether there's any, uh, any, any double spending going on. They would validate the block, and then once they'd validated the block, they would link it off, and they would, uh, and they would put a, they put a timestamp on it, and they'd put, a, they'd put a crypto key at the end of it, and that would be done. It couldn't be, it couldn't be changed. Now... Uh, it takes a lot of work to actually do this validation of the blockchain. I mean, the reason it's called a blockchain is each time you add additional transactions, you put them in a block, you validate those, and then you add it to all the previous blocks. So it's a chain of blocks that have been validated. So it becomes a block 
chain. And, uh, and he, he, it basically it was a brilliant solution to eliminate the problem of double spending. Now, he had the problem that he's got to pay these people that are, that are validating the blockchain. How, how in the world do you pay these guys? Uh, so what he did uh, when they validate the blockchain, he paid them actually in Bitcoin. So he used the cryptocurrency to pay them. And so if they would, so in the beginning, they would get 50 Bitcoins for every block that was validated. Now it's down to just, you know, you know, um, maybe only one, one it, it's it, each time there's less, fewer and fewer Bitcoins given for, for the block. So you have to do more and more work for Bitcoin. Uh, right at this point, there have been 18 million Bitcoins uh, generated by the network. And the network is designed to uh, stop issuing Bitcoins when it gets to 21 million. Now, he did this because he was just fed up with the banking system. So here's our clue that he was fed up with the banking system. In the Genesis block, which was the first block of transactions, which was actually validated by the blockchain program, he put in a message. This is the message. And the message was from the London Times. It was a, it was a, uh, a headline in the London Times that said, Chancellor on the brink of the second bailout for banks. Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks in the UK Times, in the London Times. In other words, he was trying to make the point that he's creating a monetary system which is more stable and more dependable than the current monetary system. So he had a libertarian streak in him. So he started doing this, and so this note was interpreted as both as a timestamp, because you know the date the article came out, so you know that this was done after the article was came out, and it's also a derisive comment on the instability caused by the fractional reserve banking system. Fractional reserve banking system means you only have to keep part of your deposits on reserve, not all of them, and the fraction was too small. Nakamoto continued to collaborate with other developers in the Bitcoin software until mid-2020. He actually made all the modifications to the source code himself. Uh, he, he would make comments on the blog, but then around 20, not, not 2020, till mid-2010, he, he, he made contributions till mid-2010. He, he was contributing to the blog, and he made modifications to the source code himself. Then in mid-2010, he just backed out completely. He gave over control of the source code repository because it was all open source code. He gave control of the source code repository and network alert key, alert key to Gavin Anderson. He transferred several related domains like Bitcoin.org to various prominent members of the Bitcoin community. And then he stopped all involvement in the project in 2010. Now, Nakamoto never revealed any personal information when he began discussing that, uh, when he was discussing technical matters, although at times he provided commentary on banking and the fractional reserve banking system that he just simply abhorred. On his P2P, peer-to-peer foundation profile in 2012, Nakamoto claimed to be a 37-year-old male who lived in Japan. However, some speculated he's unlikely to be Japanese due to his native level of English and the fact that his Bitcoin software is not being documented or labeled in Japanese. 
Now, the use of British language in both source code comments and forum postings, such as bloody hard, flat for your house, or mass, or the spelling of gray, G-R-E-Y, and color, C-O-L-O-U-R, led to speculation that Nakamoto was, a, or at least one individual in the consortium claiming to be him was of Commonwealth origin. The reference to the London Times newspaper on the first Bitcoin block mined by Nakamoto suggested some particular interest in the British government. Stefan Thomas, a Swiss software engineer and active community member, graphed the timestamps of Nakamoto's Bitcoin forum posts, more than 500, and the chart showed that there were almost no posts between 5 a.m. and 11 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Now, that would have been in the middle of the day in Japan. So it's unlikely he was posting from Japan. Mm -hmm. It looks more like he was posting Greenwich Mean Time there over in uh, London. Now, by analyzing the initial transfers on the blockchain, they could sort of figure out how many Bitcoin Sakamoto owns because they could see they were going, because you can, it's public, you can see where the Bitcoins and what wallet they're being transferred into. They are inferring that uh, Nakamoto actually owns about 21 million Bitcoins. Now that's 5% of the total Bitcoin holdings and it has a total market value of $50 billion. Wow. <laughs> so how do you like that? That's if he's still around. And if it's just one person. And if Could it's just it... one person. Mm -hmm. Now, several people have been put forward as the real Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, and, and some people have been trying to claim it. The first guy, Dorian Nakamoto. <laughs> And huh. actually, his real name is Satoshi Nakamoto. He's, uh, he actually is an academic, and he's an engineer in California. And he was named as the creator uh, of Bitcoin by Leah McGrath in a Newsweek article in 2024. Now, the 64-year-old Japanese-American man, uh, whose name really is Satoshi Nakamoto, he's been ruled out. He said, I, I got no interest in crypto. It is definitely not me. So I, I think, uh, although it looked like it could have been him just because of the coincidence of the name, I think they, he's pretty much established it wasn't him. There's another guy, Hal Finney. Now, he was part of the cyberpunk movement. These are the guys that are trying to use cryptography to sort of beat the man, you know, this libertarian beacon. He was one of the pillars of the Bitcoin movement. Hal Finney uh, died in 2014. Probably not him then. Well, no, 20, he died in 2014. Remember, uh, Sakamoto stopped contributing in 2010. Oh, okay. Okay. I forgot so, that part. Yeah, he died in... Tw Jim, it's only been 10 minutes. Okay, listen, Jim. <laughs> it's you may Saturday not, morning. It may be that you're not going to do too well on the pop quiz. <laughs> Probably not, but I'm also not eligible to win the pop quiz. Oh, that is correct. That is correct. So the motivation to listen is just gone. <laughs> no, I just forgot that he stopped posting in 2010. Yeah, so Finney Continue. died in 2014, uh, uh, and Finney was the first person to receive a Bitcoin. I mean, that's kind of a clue. Yeah. He also coincidentally lives a few blocks from Dorian Nakamoto, his ah. neighbor, who was Satoshi Nakamoto. So there are many people who believe that, that he was the, uh, 
the uh, the Satoshi. Uh, you know, he was uh, Satoshi, and that he simply picked the name of his neighbor as a pseudonym. Because and there's a and there's a certain amount of logic to that. Now there's another guy, Nick Zabo. Now like Finney, Zabo was an early cyberpunk, and he was friends with many people in the circle. Now in 1999, Zabo de designed a mechanism for a centralized digital currency, which he called Bitcoin. Bitcoin was never implemented, but it was a direct precursor. I mean, Bitgold was never implemented, but it was a direct precursor to Bitcoin. And uh, Nick Zabo had, had said in his blogs he wanted to actually fully implement a version that would do what, what Bitgold was supposed to do. Okay, now think about this. Nick Zabo, the initials are NS. Uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, SN. Same oh, initials. yeah, that's another, that's another connection. There you go. Now, what Mr. I conspiracy actually theory. Am, am thinking, uh, I mean, people have looked at the code, they've looked at the blogs. It, it appears like there's more than one writer in the blogs. So I think it was a group that actually were operating under the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto. Okay. Uh, and I think... Hal Finney and Nick Zabo were both cyberpunks in the same circle. They both received early disbursements of Bitcoin. I'm thinking that these two guys were in the group that created Bitcoin. Hmm. That's that's my feeling. And uh, and it could be that Hal Finney, when he because he had uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, maybe he when he realized that he was so sick, he decided that he would. Uh, take Bitcoin and uh, and give all the assets to other people so the movement could go forward. But th nobody really knows uh, who who Satoshi Nakamoto is, but there is speculation everywhere. So there, this is everything you wanted to know about Satoshi Nakamoto, the pseudonym man who created Bitcoin and changed the world with blockchain. Well, I hope you're paying more attention than I was because you can take that knowledge and turn it into free lunch by playing the pop quiz and winning coming up here on Tech Talk Radio. Heard on 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and Loudoun County, 104.5 FM, and southwest of D.C. on 107.7 FM HD2. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity.
If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome back to Classroom of the Airways. Now, you may not be cheering so much when you realize you're going to receive a pop quiz. Ah. Uh, to see whether you have been listening and if you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get an A-plus for today's show. You'll also get two tickets to fine dining at one of the Stratford dining rooms. And I think we're getting close to opening them up. Things are looking mighty good. Good. I'll keep, uh, I'll keep you posted on that. Earlier in the show, I talked about Satoshi Nakamoto. He's the, uh, the person or the pseudonym person who developed Bitcoin. In the Genesis block of Bitcoin, that's the first... Those are the first transactions that were validated. He placed a, a political statement by putting uh, the name of an article in that Genesis block. Uh, either give me the name of the article or what paper published that article that was in the Genesis block. If you know the answer to today's question, pick up your phone, give us a call. Dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If you're standing next to a pile of used masks east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're practicing your British English spelling in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's sanitized hourly using wanted-up versions of the London Times, 877-936-9333. 333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, let's talk about the Colonial uh, Pipeline. Yeah. That was hit with ransomware this week. Now, they suffered a ransomware attack, and they shut down completely. Now, why this is so significant is that the Colonial Pipeline delivers 45% of, of the petroleum products to the East Coast. That includes gasoline, diesel fuel, and jet fuel. Now, many gas stations shut down, and the average price for gas rose above $3 for the first time in 2014. Now, oil is now flowing in the Colonial Pipeline, uh, and it'll probably takes 14 days to bring it up to be fully operational, but Colonial said they'll start having gas out there in a few days. But although Colonial Pipeline didn't want, want to admit it, many are reporting that they paid $5 million in ransom to... Uh, to get their data back. Now, normally these uh, these thugs, these cyber uh, hackers, uh, charge maybe $25 million. But because Colonial was actually doing work and they were such a high visibility target, they only charged them $5 million. Now, actually, it's not clear whether the pipeline itself was ever at risk because what they hacked was the accounting system. <laughs> and Colonial said, we'd. Without the accounting system, we wouldn't know who to bill for the gas or for the fuel. 
So if they didn't know how to bill it correctly, they didn't want any fuel to flow. So they just cut off the flow until they could get the accounting system backed up again. Now, now unnamed U.S. government sources have uh, that, uh, and, and private security sources that were engaged by Colonial have said that the Russian criminal gang Darkseid was responsible for the attack. Now, Darkseid uh, typically uses non-Russian-speaking attacks in non-Russian-speaking countries, and they describe themselves as apolitical. Uh, Darkseid tries to avoid medical uh, facilities, education facilities, nonprofit facilities, or government sectors. They claim to only attack companies that can pay the requested amount, and they don't want to be highly disruptive. It's quite possible that Darkseid did not realize that the Colonial Pipeline attack would bring so much heat. I don't think they realized it's a high-value target. In fact, they even issued an apology. It said, if we would have known it was so important, we wouldn't have attacked it. Now, now here's what happened. Uh, you know, Colonial paid the $5 million, and then our, our crack cyber security government forces said they're going to go after these guys. So uh, just yesterday, the Dark Side Ransomware Group announced that they were closing up shop after their servers were seized and someone hacked into their crypto wallet and stole all their crypto. <laughs> and that was the account that they used to pay all their affiliates. So they just shut down. Uh, they said they lost all access to all, public, all parts of the public part of their infrastructure and they explained that the outage uh, would, uh, that, that they, the, the, the portions of it where they used to shame their victims if they didn't pay, that was also, they lost control of that. And so they are just going out of business temporarily. <laughs> yeah. So I think what came around, what goes around comes around. Back with now, the here's the name. thing. They did say they were releasing the, the, the decryption tools for all the companies that have been ransomed but have not yet paid. So had... Uh, had Colonial Pipelines waited a few days, they wouldn't have had to pay the $5 million. But I think they were pretty anxious to get crack in there. And so, and it just shows how vulnerable we are to these kind of attacks. Now, two questions for you, Doc. As we've, yes. as we've talked about before in, in previous uh, hacking uh, incidents, it's not such a great idea to pay the money because it just emboldens the cyber terrorists to do it again, right? It is very true. And every company, when somebody else is attacked, says the same thing. <laughs> so, and the other point is, and I heard this brought up this past week, so it turns out that they, they hacked into the accounting system, but wouldn't it have made sense, since it's a pipeline and there's a right-of-way, don't you think they would? it would have made sense, and perhaps they've done this, to have their own, so to speak, internet that runs along the pipeline that they could use to control the pipeline itself? Wouldn't that make the pipeline less vulnerable? Yeah, I'd, I think you'd, you'd want to take all of the uh, devices off the internet for the pipeline. Yeah, there's always a problem of pa of attacking infrastructure, and there are there are devices that basically, you know, sw so if if they want to remotely control, say, pumps and uh, and valves and the, the controls are, are, are delivered via internet, those can easily be hacked. And there's been a lot of research that shows infrastructure uh, relays that are connected to the internet are not so secure. Yeah. So yeah, they, they'd be much better off hardening that. But these, this, 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 this group of thieves, they, they just figured the, the accounting system was like easier to get at.
Yeah. It was just on one server. Mm -hmm. And, and so it was just an easy hit and they figured we shut down the, uh, the accounting system there. It's going to shut down the, the whole system, but this is a problem. And, uh, everyone told them not to pay the, uh, the ransom. They announced they, they would not pay the ransom. And then somebody inside an anonymous source revealed that they actually paid $5 million within a couple of hours. Yeah. It was pretty quick. It was very, very quick. All right, Doc, we got somebody who'd like to play the game. Okay. Let's go to line one. This is MC calling us from Silver Spring. MC, good morning, sir. Good morning, Jim, Jim and Doc. Okay, Thank Doc, you I asked the question. Early in the show, I talked about Satoshi Nakamoto, the, the creator or the pseudonym creator of Bitcoin. In the Genesis block, he put a political message by referencing an article. Where did that article appear, or what was the name? appeared in the times of london that is correct. correct excellent very good thank you for calling mc we'll send that prize out to you shortly this is tech talk radio heard on federal news network 1500 a.m 1035 fm hd2 1077 fm hd2 southwest of dc and in loudon county on 104.5 fm want to learn more about stratford university and possibly attend go to stratford.edu if it's technology talk radio it trends software the internet and it careers more of tech talk radio presented by stratford university coming up in a moment in the next three years there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs how can you make that work for you Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. Hopefully soon uh, we won't need to deal yes. with the door No, I did, everything is complete, Jim. I, yes. just, I really can't get started unless I hear that. Yes. The comfort of that door shutting. I know. Yeah. I want to talk today about the importance of distributed ledgers. See, we all talked about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and Ether, and everybody's focused on speculating on, uh, on cryptocurrencies. But we're missing the real uh, breakthrough, and that's called distributed ledgers. Uh, you see, we, we've got this problem. We want personal autonomy, but you got big government that's in the middle of everything, or you got big business or big banking that's in the middle of everything. Every transaction has a middleman, and dist distributed ledgers seek to get rid of that. 
Distributed ledgers are actually the first major advancement in accounting systems since double entry accounting. I mean, that goes back a while. I mean, the Romans introduced double entry accounting in around 70 AD, but it wasn't widely implemented in, in the banking system. The Medici's uh, brought double entry accounting into banking in the 1400s. The mm -hmm. Medici's were, of course, were the, were, uh, were, the, were the bankers for the Pope, and they, they were in Florence, and they introduced double entry accounting in the 1400s. And we have not had an advance in accounting since then. And distributed ledgers provide that advancement. At the current time, every transaction has an inter intermediary. I mean, and everything is vulnerable to government intrusion. Banks, whether they like it or not, must collect information about their customers, and they share it with the government. You know, if it's a transaction more than $10,000, they report you. Social media platforms facilitate a, have facilitated a global, global surveillance of individuals in the name of national security, and they share all that data with the government. Currency valuation is subject to the whims of government fiscal policy. Look, look what is happening in Venezuela. They print all this money, then they got... Inflation at 600%. Mm. Unnamed government and private security. Oh, no, just a minute here. And so this is the, um, just a minute here. Where did I lose this second? We're having I'm having all technical kinds of problems, problems here, actually. Ah, here we go. Here we go. In societies lacking uh, constitutional protection that allows individuals to preserve their freedom, decentralized networks can help people escape the yoke of tyranny. For example, Venezuela recently have increasingly, Venezuelans increasingly have resorted to Bitcoin to avoid the rapidly depreciating currency issued by their national central bank. And the capital controls that trap people's savings inside of Venezuela, because you can't transfer it out. So by removing the go-between between, uh, and using decentralized networks, we eliminate the chance that intermediaries might, you know, abuse the individual who's actually trying to use it. So thus, libertarians believe that decentralization that's allowed with distributed blockchains uh, will give people more freedom. So what, uh, you know, and so what it is, is that we can just simply do things more efficiently. If you want to know where we're going to see the biggest impact, look at where we've got inefficiencies. Let's just take... Uh, International payments, if you want to transfer money internationally, there are a whole lot of fees. But if you use cryptocurrency, the fees just go down to almost nothing. If you use, if you go through all the intermediaries, the fees are between 3 and 10%. Decentralized networks will put pressure on poorly performing governments. Regulators, adjudicators, legislators have near monopoly power, and they can do whatever they want. Uh, but with the distributed ledgers, they don't have that much power. Let's just give one example. Suppose we would use a distributed ledger for recording uh, real estate transactions. So instead of going to the county seat and registering the deed, you simply place a copy of your deed on a blockchain. And that blockchain is then in, is, is, would then, that blockchain would then, it would be sent out to thousands of computers all over the world, it would be validated, and it's there. And once it's validated in the blockchain, uh, it can't be changed. It's immutable. So uh, 
somebody unscrupulous person in say in in a developing country can't go to the to the government center and erase somebody's name and put somebody else's yeah. name on the deed. That's a big problem these days, isn't it? It's a it is a huge problem. Or let's take uh, uh, you know another example would be uh, you know loans. So you you could use this thing loans. You you could get a loan and, the, and 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 your payments could be could be all handled through the blockchain. The and and when the loan's paid off, it's you know in a smart contract you automatically. Uh, you know, it's automatic. You're automatically released. You you don't depend on the bank, on the bank to do anything. Uh, in, in the case of uh, of uh, any kind of art, you could you could you could transfer art using distributed ledgers. Let's take a um, a distributed ledger could be used for a supply chain. Suppose a grocery store is selling mangoes and they say it's coming from an organic farmer in Brazil. Well, how do you really know that? Right. Well, if every time that mango went from the farmer to this person, to that person, to that person. The transaction was recorded in the blockchain. So when you finally get the mango at the grocery store, you just there will be a little uh, QR code. You scan the QR code, and it traces back all the transactions for that particular mango all the way back to the farmer. And so you can really prove that that mango came from a farmer in Brazil. So blockchains can actually transform everything. It's a distributed ledger. Uh, that means you you make an addition to it, uh, and then you have to validate the tradition. In the case of Bitcoin, so it makes, or in the case of any kind of cryptocurrency, you make certain that it uh, that you don't have double spending. But if you're if you're just or you just could could note the, uh, the, the the transfer. Say for instance, you're you in the case of land, if somebody sold their land. But then they tried to sell the same land to two people, uh, and to put it in a blockchain, it would be it would be detected. Or in the case of art, you could do that too. So blockchains are a tremendous way to maintain an accounting system, and it's a public ledger distributed over thousands of computers and not easily corrupted. So I think this is going to be a huge innovation that's going to have an impact. Now all the blockchains that are running, they the gas that fuels them is that they give all these nodes cryptocurrency to do the work. And that's where the cryptocurrency comes from. The cryptocurrency provides the gas that drives the blockchain. And too many people just focus on speculating on cryptocurrency. Actually, they should focus on what the blockchains can do to make this a better world. Okay, what time is... Oh, my goodness. Time ah, is just it's flowing just flying so away. fast. Yeah, so let's talk about the innovation of the week. An electric vehicle motor without magnets. That is really the key. Mm -hmm. uh, a German company, Mahle, Mahle, M-A-H-L-E, Mahle, just announced an EV motor that uses no magnets. Now, this is really good because China makes 97% of the world's supply of magnets. I didn't now, know Ma that. Yeah, who, who would have thought that? Yeah. Because they're locking up all the, all the materials that go into magnets. And uh, Mali uses no magnets. Instead, they use powered currents in its rotor. And unlike previous efforts, it transfers power to the spinning rotor using contactless induction. So if you can get an electric current running through a coil, you'll generate a magnetic field. So they're using coils to generate the magnetic field instead of permanent magnets. Now, Mahill, it's much cheaper to make this thing. Moreover, because as the motor spins up, 
you can change the distribution of the magnetic field. You can make it more efficient. So you can have an electric motor that's efficient at low RPM as well as at high RPM. And that's better than you can get from a permanent magnet system. So they, uh, they could get 95% efficiency out of this system. I think this is going to be a huge breakthrough for electric vehicles. And it's going to uh, really help with the, the whole supply chain and reducing our dependence on China. Now, the company says they can scale these motors all the way up from compact car size to commercial truck size. Hmm. Production is two and a half years away. I think this is a really good development. Let's talk briefly about Elon Musk and what yes. he's been driving. He's been driving the crypto markets crazy. Now, Elon Musk tweeted that his company will no longer accept Bitcoin as a payment for vehicles. Now, if you rem remember back in March, he said that they would accept Bitcoin. And as soon as he did that, Bitcoin values went up 20%. Now, what he had done, though, before he made that announcement, he bought $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin. Oops. And then he made the announcement. So his $1.5 billion in Bitcoin went up to $2.5 billion. He made a quick billion dollars overnight. Isn't that kind of like insider trading? Well, not really. I mean, you're just buying Bitcoin. Not, it's not. I don't think it's illegal, but it mm. would... Because he's not inside a Bitcoin. I mean, he's not, it's, yep. he's not inside the Bitcoin. True. He's just he's just uh, driving it up. It, it does seem suspicious, though, doesn't it? Yeah. But I think it was totally and completely legal. But then some green folks, they said, Eli, Bitcoin, they're using all this energy. It's bad for the environment. You cannot support Bitcoin. So then he did an about face and he said, OK, now we are no longer going to accept Bitcoin because it uses too much energy. I'm only going to follow uh, cryptos that use less energy. And so immediately Bitcoin dropped 20 percent within uh, within like 30 minutes. So that's where we have. So are we just about out of time? We're done. Jim? We got to go. OK, listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And check out our programs at www.stratford.edu. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.